Hey everybody, welcome to the Chamber Channel's Five Questions podcast. This is the place where we take a deep dive with industry leaders for an inside look at their world and how they can make a difference in yours. Today we're sitting down with Kevin Cassidy and Kevin is with the International Labor Organization, an organization which was founded in 1919 and brings together governments, employers, and workers of 187 member states. Kevin, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Tell our listeners what the International Labor Organization is, and then what a uh, little bit about your mission. You know, the ILO came out of the turmoil of World War I, um, alongside the League of Nations, uh, born in the chaos of war. Um, the mission of the ILO really is to help set the ground rules for the global economy. As you can imagine, in 1919, uh, there were many different economic models. And uh, in the sort of beginning of capitalism, we needed to know uh, what uh, what everybody had to do. So the ILO uh, became a normative agency, which meant that we bring governments and workers and employers together in this tripartite manner to discuss all the issues in the world of work and to find resolutions on that. Um, our job here in Washington is promoting that mission of what we call decent work and social justice, meaning the application of uh, the rules of the road in order for everyone to benefit from the economy and contributing to that, whether it be as an employer in investing your ideas and your money and your uh, time and industry, as well as those who would bring their skills and time to bear in those jobs. And in Washington, we speak with uh, a number of organizations and departments in the U.S. government uh, to basically show what's happening around the world, uh, where we need to sort of uh, fix problems that exist, um, and uh, and to work together with uh, with the various uh, agencies to make sure that the world is um, progressing economically and socially. Kevin, you spent four decades in international development. That's a long time and a lot of experience. Tell us a little bit about those years and those four decades that led you to where you are today. Seems like yesterday. I think for all of us who work in the professions that we love, uh, you know, grew up uh, in uh, New York in the shadow of the UN, always had a love of languages and travel. Um, so the UN was a natural uh, connection for me. I've worked uh, in a variety of environments, uh, everything from economic and political development uh, out of the Secretary General's office. I've worked in peacekeeping operations and removing landmines in uh, mine affected areas. Uh, and uh, my work with the ILO is really trying to ensure that we have sustainable businesses and people who uh, can uh, provide for their families and uh, for the future uh, in those communities. So it's uh, been a long, uh, long road. But uh, again, I think there's a lot of work to be done. Well, we're honored to be talking to you today. On supply chain issues, we know that's been a hot topic here. Where do you think we are with that? And how is it affecting not only the small business, but really all the way up to the, the corporate levels? COVID-19 really impacted every aspect of the global value chains, uh, from the sourcing of materials to end customers. Um, but as we know, you know, supply chains are different in different sectors. Um, so there have been different constraints. There have been different problems. Um, also, businesses are operating in different environments around the world under different legislation, um, having challenges such as uh, finding the right skill sets in their workforce, and also being challenged in you know the global production modalities that are being used. You know the idea about having uh, 
you know, very little inventory, not having stock. I mean, COVID had showed us that that, uh, that that business model was a bit under threat. So for the ILO, our work really takes two tracks. We look at improving efficiency and resilience in supply chains, so ensuring that economic growth moves forward. Uh, but we also look at that ensuring those supply chains are protecting and promoting uh, you know, the men, women and men who are working in those supply chains globally. So by bringing together those workers and employers to have that discussion. So what are the key problems we're seeing? So the problems that the ILO is seeing today is that we are still experiencing those logistic disruptions, those production delays, um, mainly because there's a competition for uh, the limited supply of key commodities, um, but also because of the structural changes. But we're also seeing shifts within that. We're seeing the rising cost of living and concerns about inflation. We're seeing energy shortages in the form of rising gas prices and reduced supplies. Um, one out of six companies in Germany, for example, are expecting to scale back their production because uh, this um, uh, problem that they'll have in keeping those factories going. So globally, we are also seeing a substantial mismatch between the skills that are required for today's world of work and for example, the National Association of Manufacturers in the USA, we're facing a 2.1 million shortfall of workers by 2030. You know, this could cost the US economy $1 trillion. Um, there's also been changes in the workforce. Um, some of it has to go uh, with the fact that people are looking for more security in the workplace. Some people are looking and reassessing what kind of jobs they had. Um, so we are currently seeing, you know, a, a rethinking, a reassessment of the work uh, that people are doing today. We also see in the background uh, political unrest, um, climate change, you know, the dropping water levels, uh, uh, making it difficult for ships to navigate waterways they normally would do. And uh, we're also seeing the need for greater investments in technology uh, across supply chains. But again, these are political considerations because there is a displacement effect of introducing automation and people who can have jobs. So I, I think we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us, but you know, I think globally we're pretty clever, uh, uh, both at the worker level and at the employer level. And I think we're gonna be figuring it out. That leads us into the CHIPS Act. Let's talk about that. What are your thoughts there? The manufacturing of microchips in the United States, I mean, here it was developed, right? I mean, the microchip was the product of US uh, innovation. Um, today, there's only about 10% of microchips are actually produced here in the U.S. Um, so if countries want to be focused on being a trailblazer or leading in the global digital economy, um, the, the uh, legislation like the CHIPS Act, uh, the Science Act, is absolutely essential. But we do have to make sure that it is focused on a human-centered future of decent work. We can't just leave people behind at the, at the expense of having automation because in order to run these machines and in order to run these algorithms or to maintain these machines, you need people who actually are trained for that. So what we see is that this focus on manufacturing and supply chains, uh, investment in science and technology, nanotechnology, this is all the future. Um, however, Congress still needs to secure the funding for it. So the, the game is uh, not over yet. But we are very um, very enthusiastic because we see a number of companies that have announced that they will start to build factories, so Global Foundries, Intel, Samsung, TSMC, MC, and Texas Instruments are all uh, getting into the act here, and rightly so. Um, and not only is it the CHIPS Act, but uh, the climate provisions of the latest uh, uh, legislation, Inflation Reduction Act, 
also looks at battery production for our surging electrical vehicle market. Now we need to look at the downstream and the charging stations and all, but we need to produce those batteries. And that's where the economy is going. So I think the CHIPS Act definitely focuses on the right areas, workforce development, because there is an increasing demand for workforces that have those skill sets. Industries need to sort of look at how they're going to bring in those workers. Some may be here in the United States. Others may have to be brought in from abroad. So looking at how the migration reform will look at that. Um, but I do think that these big responses uh, to these challenges, albeit financially expensive, but are absolutely essential if you want to maintain that leadership in the world today. On the on the microchips, was it the pandemic that really brought that to the forefront? Or is that something that uh, was being worked on? prior to that, getting that back into the United States? Yeah, I, I think, my, you know, from my advantage point, and, and again, the ILO, we look more globally, but from my position here in Washington, it was happening, but it albeit very slowly. There was no sense in really making big changes. COVID came along and really just changed the entire way we were thinking about how we're engaging with the world around us, how we needed to have security here within the U.S. to be able to have this uh, these chips here, because you look at cars, right? I mean, there are these um, uh, millions of cars that have been produced, but every single car with all the new features, they all need the chips with the firmware embedded in that in order for that to to, uh, to meet the customer's demand. So I think it was happening, but I think COVID really pushed that to the fore. And I think the political or geopolitical turmoil that we see over in the Ukraine today, the war that's taking place, that's really focused people on looking at supply chains and making sure that we would not be held hostage as it happened back in the 70s with oil and gas. So I, I think it was happening, but definitely COVID has pushed that to the fore. And I think the responses that are being made now are good, politically difficult, but I think uh, important and necessary. We saw the automobile groups that had troubles with the chips coming in. What other industries do you see as, uh, as struggling a little bit with the microchips and not being able to move as fast as they would like to move? I mean, there are, I think all in, uh, industries today or all sectors today are, are being impacted uh, upon uh, technology. Um, you know, it's uh, not only in the automotive, but in the light and heavy machinery. It is uh, about uh, consumer uh, technologies. I mean, our phones today are, uh, are um, our technology in our homes, uh, you know, to protect our homes. I mean, all of these require the chips. And, uh, you know, without those chips, uh, many of these uh, many of these industries would uh, grind to a halt. So we are in the midst of a transition uh, from a more analog type of world to a digital world. And uh, microchips are going to play a part of that. Why do you think this is an exciting time for businesses and labor to re rethink the supply chain and make them stronger companies, also not only for the companies, but for the workers and, and people all around the world? You know, in looking at these issues, you know, it, I, I think what people need to understand is that businesses and labor need each other. You know, uh, people need good jobs. They need to have a going concern. So you need to support the businesses and making those investments. And uh, the, you know, the counter argument to that is that businesses do need talented workforces, so they need to treat their workers as valuable resources. So by improving the dialogue between the workers and employers, being understanding of the constraints that people have uh, in the workplace today, for example, COVID-19 brought to the fore a lot of uh, the reassessment they called the great resignation at first. But I think the reassessment is the right way. People are wondering, what does work mean to me? 
it's very different from what it was for my grandfather when he came here from Ireland and he was working, you know, in a labor job in New York so that my mother could then be a scientist working at the university and then I can go on to my job. So I think the employers are starting to understand that by having the talented workforce and by treating them well, that they are, number one, more loyal, more productive, more dedicated to the mission of that uh, business. And the businesses themselves realize that they need to retain that talent because you can't always keep on cycling people through. So I think that, you know, the supply chain issues and the COVID-19 has caught the attention of C-suite executives. I think that, you know, this um, this idea of business continuity looking at COVID, you know, many businesses thought that they would have to stop. And, and many of them did. We saw that in the accommodations. We saw that in the hospitality. We saw that in the luxury goods. And so so companies re-looking at this are starting to realize that there are critical failures along the supply chain and we need to build new alliances. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you've got your house in order, strong um, strong leadership and management on one hand, and uh, talented uh, uh, workers in the organization who are going to help you realize that goal for your institution. We know that you're a, a highly recognized speaker, not only nationally, but internationally. On November the 11th, the World Affairs Council here on Hilton Head Island will be hosting you and for a global supply chain uh, meeting and informational setting. Tell us what uh, some of the things that you're going to address there and what people should expect. And before you do that, I want to say thank you for committing to that group because they're a, a wonderful organization and they have fabulous speakers that provides access to so many people that we couldn't have access to like you, as well as many others through the World Affairs Council. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to have been invited uh, by the Hilton Head uh, World Affairs Council. Um, it's a relationship that we started last year uh, here in Washington, and it's now bringing me across the U.S. Um, I think for me personally, you know, having grown up in New York and been around the U.S., but I've been to more countries in the world than I've been to states in the U.S. And, and this is now bringing me into contact with people around the U.S. who have also unique experiences in the world of work. So I'm hoping to share some of the examples of how other countries are addressing these challenges same challenges we face here in the U.S., same challenges that we face, so you will face in the Hilton Head and in the Carolinas. So it's looking at how we can move forward together, looking at a common vision for us to have this uh, goal of decent work for all and, and making sure that the idea of um, economic progress and social progress move forward hand in hand. Because when you have people pushing together on the same side, you're gonna go a lot further. And, and I think that the ILO has that experience and I hope to bring some of those ideas. But more importantly, I'd love to learn from those who are going to be there in the room. This is a really important opportunity for me and I'm grateful for the team there who have put this together. We're looking forward to uh, showcasing our island and showing you a little bit about Hilton Head Island, Bluffton and, and the entire region. Thank you very much, looking forward to it. Thanks everyone for listening. The podcast continues to grow and never miss an episode of our Five Questions podcast by subscribing to the Chamber Channel on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take a moment to download, subscribe, and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people.